Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes Dr. Dan Siegel for part one of their discussion on how our attachment histories impact our current relationships. Part two will be released on Tuesday, November 12th. Hello, everyone. And in just a few minutes, Dan Siegel is going to be joining me for the Attachment Theory in Action podcast today. So you can imagine, I am like super excited about this and kind of can't believe I'm actually going to be able to be interviewing this amazing man. I feel like that with a lot of the guests on here. Um, But I do want to, before we get started, give you some background um, on Dr. Siegel and I'm sure many of you are very familiar with him and his work, but want to share his bio as we get ready to gear up for the interview with him. So Dan Siegel received his medical degree from Harvard University and completed his postgraduate medical education at UCLA with training in pediatrics, child, adolescent, and adult psychiatry. He served as a National Institute of Mental Health Research Fellow at UCLA, studying family interactions with an emphasis on how attachment experiences influence emotions, behavior, autobiographical memory, and narrative. He's a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine and the founding co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA. He is an award-winning educator, a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association, and the recipient of several honorary fellowships. He's also the executive director of the Mindsight Institute, an educational organization which offers online learning and in-person seminars that focus on the development of Mindsight in individuals, families, and communities, and how it can be enhanced by examining the interface of human relationships and basic biological processes. His psychotherapy practice includes children, adolescents, couples, and families. He serves as the medical director of the Lifespan Learning Institute and is on the advisory board of the Blue Schools in New York City, which has built its curriculum around Dr. Siegel's Mindsight approach. I'm sure many of you know other books that he has written. The first book that I read by Dr. Siegel uh, was The Developing Mind, and I purchased that. I actually checked this. I purchased that in 2000, read it in 2000, and then had him sign my copy of it in 2003 at the International Theraplay Conference where we had a lunch with him. So. It's hard to believe that it's been now 20 years of exposure to his books and his writings, and I just continue to learn from him uh, with, with every book that he publishes. Some of you also may be familiar with his book, Parenting from the Inside Out. 
this was one of his first books directed uh, to parents. He's now written quite a few other parenting books, which you can look up uh, on Amazon, No Drama Discipline, and, and quite a few other ones, The Whole Brain Child. Uh, but my favorite in terms of parent books still remains Parenting from the Inside Out. Uh, and so you will hear us talking about uh, that a bit uh, briefly in our interview. Our interview is going to be related to adult attachment, the adult attachment interview, how our, our attachment histories impact our current relationships. So it's with great pleasure that I am going to move on here in a few minutes to the interview with Dr. Siegel. Do you want to be part of the launch team for Karen's new book, Raising the Challenging Child? Karen and co-author Debbie Reed are looking for people to join their launch team ahead of the book's release on January 7th. Head to Karen's Facebook page, watch her welcome video, and sign up to help Karen and Debbie get the word out on Raising the Challenging Child, available for pre-order soon. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am your host, Karen Buckwalter, and I am here with a name that is going to be familiar with uh, very many of you. I'm here with Dr. Daniel Siegel. So thank you, Dr. Siegel, for joining me today. Hi, Karen. Great to be here. And you can call me Dan if you oh, want. Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you. I will. So uh, I am going, we are going to be talking today about various aspects of the adult attachment interview and just a bit about our own history in general and, and how that impacts our current relationships and parenting. And I'm really looking forward to it because I know that this is something that you have thought about a lot and written about a lot. So I think it's going to be a good conversation. Wonderful. Great to be here with you. Yeah. So let's just start out. Uh, if you could share a brief bit about how you got involved in even going to the adult attachment interview boot camp training and starting to use it. Um, I think it could be interesting just to hear a little bit about that to start us out. Like why, why were you interested in this? Yeah. Well, I guess for me, the, um, the journey involved becoming a therapist first. And then as I was training to be a therapist after initial year of pediatrics and then moving to psychiatry, I had actually worked with Chris Heineke in um, uh, doing home visitations. And I could see that the kind of the mind of the parent had such a big influence on the way the infant who I was observing over that time in home visitations was developing that I just was intrigued with like, what is the mind and, you know, why would one parent's mind lead to a certain kind of attachment experience and that same child with the same temperament would have a very different attachment with a parent uh, who had a different kind of mind or, you know, uh, the mind being your emotions, your memories, the way you think. And um, so when I went to psychiatry, part of my adult psychiatry training was to learn from not only Chris Heineke, uh, but also Marion Sigmund about development. Um, and these two child psychologists were really influential in my life uh, and my training. Um, and Marion Sigmund um, taught about uh, this finding. This was now 1984, 85, and the 
monographs of the Society for Research and Child Development came out in 1985 uh, with a, a whole edition that was highlighting the adult attachment interview in this process called the move to representations. So I read that monograph in 1985 and I went to Marion Sigmund and I said, you know, this finding that it isn't so much what happened to a parent in her or his childhood, but how she's come to make sense of what happened as revealed in this amazing research instrument, the adult attachment interview that looks at the coherence of the narrative. Um, it was not only from a scientist's point of view, an incredibly fascinating finding. Why is the making sense process so robust, a predictor of a child of that person's attachment, but also as a therapist, you know, making sense of one's life is exactly what therapy is all about. So, you know, the scientist in me was intrigued. The therapist that I was training to be was absolutely thrilled that you could um, have a, an objective research measure about the making sense process. And so I, I told Marion Sigmund I wanted to study with her and, and wanted to study the adult attachment interview. So she got me in touch with Mary Main and Mary and Eric Hesse um, were teaching the adult attachment interview. So I learned how to, you know, uh, offer the instrument, went to the two-week training in Virginia with Carlin Lyons-Ruth and Avi Sagi and <clears throat> many other people who were there at the time for that year of training. This was in 1990, in the summer of 1990, August of 1990. And, um, you know, I feel like that was, you know, the most intellectually stimulating uh, and incredibly inspiring training I've ever had, even to this day. And um, I'm so thankful to Mary and Eric for the training, for the colleagues that were there for our intellectual discussions. And I would say my whole, you know, approach to understanding the developing mind and and uh, it's unfolding not just in attachment, but in therapy and in life, was absolutely shaped by the incredible wisdom and brilliance of the adult attachment interview and the people who still work in that area. You know? Yes, yes. And so I'm thinking as, as you're talking, maybe for listeners, we should just briefly describe the interview in case somebody is unfamiliar with oh, it. Sure. Um, let's, let's go ahead and do that and, and just share um, a quick overview of the interview. <clears throat> You want me to do it, or you're also trained at a Karen, so you yeah, can do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, it's a series of questions that ask about your childhood relationship with your parents um, is, is kind of how it starts out. And then it, it also goes into um, looking at any history of loss or trauma uh, in the individual's life. Um, and um, as you said, we we score it on a, a number of different scales. But I think what's most exciting for clinicians is that we're looking at coherence and that idea that you mentioned earlier that it's not it's not what happened to you, but to use um, I love Miriam Steele's word how you've metabolized that. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. Yes. And um, yeah, so so that's what I would share about it. What what, what would you want to add? <laughs> no, well, Karen, I think that's beautiful. And Miriam's term is so great. Uh, I, I love Miriam Howard. And we were actually just together with a gathering at Berkeley 
I don't, I don't remember how many of us, there were maybe 30 of us or, or maybe it was 25 of us talking about the future, 30 years of oh, wow. research, you know, and folks. How do you get invited to that gathering? <laughs> you know, it was like a think tank <laughs> on the future of, uh, I don't know what, the attachment research or maybe disorganized attachment or um, I forgot what the topic was, but it was a blast anyway. And we were yes. all hanging out there together. It was, uh, anyway, there's lots of fun stuff to tell about that. But so, um, I, yeah, the only thing I would just add to what you're saying is, you know, the, as Mary Main, as a graduate student of Mary Ainsworth, who was a collaborator and colleague with John Bowlby, um, as Mary Main describes, you know, the, the initial attempt to measure attachment in the attachment theory perspective that um, Mary Ainsworth and John Bowlby formulated together, you know, was um, in the um, infant strange situation study in Baltimore. And Mary um, Main uh, was the graduate student of Mary Ainsworth. And, and in that um, experience, what happened was they came to realize a couple of things. Number one, it, it was not the warmth of the parent that was seeming to be the most indicative thing to go across these categories of attachment, initially three, not ultimately four when disorganized was added, but it was the sensitivity of the caregiver. Mm -hmm. An interesting measure, but even with that measure where you get, you know, somewhere around 40% predictability um, of the observations in the first year of life to the, the, um, infant's attachment to that particular caregiver. When Mary Main left her graduate studies and getting her, you know, postgraduate work and going over to Berkeley, she um, asked her students, you know, what, what would you do to try to figure out why one child develops avoidant attachment with this parent and yet with this other parent, the same child could develop a different attachment or across different parents that you would have these patterns of avoidance or ambivalence or security, or later on we discover disorganized attachment. And initially the very understandable hypothesis was, well, it's probably what happened to the parents. Well, how can you know? Well, you can't really know that no one had videos of what happened in those early years of life of the parents' life. And so they said, let's ask them questions. So they had these open-ended questions and then Mary and her graduate students um, were able to then, in an open-ended way, where they knew the infant strange situation result, could say, wow, look at these, you know, 20 questions compared to all the 100 we've been asking. You know, these 20 really help discern, you know, what child might have an avoidant attachment, which one might have had, you know, the ambivalent attachment, which one was secure. So then they went from that open-ended thing to do it in a closed way. And, and the key thing I think about this coding, that, as you know, that's so fascinating is number one, it isn't a videotape of the um, interview that you're coding, unlike you know the taping of the infant strange situation. You're coding a transcription that a typist has typed out into words on a page. And the interesting just backstory that Mary has made public about this is, you know, she had applied to graduate school in linguistics and was rejected. Yes. And so her fallback was attachment research with Mary Ainsworth. You know, <laughs> I always think that's just the, 
<laughs> most unbelievable stories. Like, oh, gee, you got stuck doing that. <laughs> right. So she finally got back to her linguistics love, you know, in taking the, the field to the next level, which just shows you always stay in touch with what you're passionate about. Yes. Um, you know, so anyway, so so that's really fascinating. So was it? So it is. There was a transcript yes. of an interview, not even the subtle, you know, nonverbals. Now, the, the transcript person is putting dots when there's a pause and all that right. stuff. That's, you do get a feeling of the pauses. But besides that, that's fascinating. So the second fascinating thing is just like you're describing, you know, as, as you talk about and as Miriam beautifully talks about metabolizing, that there's something about um, the use of language. Yes, that reflects a, a, a having metabolized experience or not. And the most robust e- example of that, of course, is unresolved trauma versus resolved trauma. Yes. Or unresolved loss versus resolved loss that you, you can never say it's the same, but, but with, with un, quite a few subjects, if we can deem that a traumatic event happened, abuse, for example, uh, or or, uh, or neglect, um, or a loss, someone dying especially, um, and that loss as determined by the disorganization of the linguistic output, mm-hmm. that is the conversation really, the mm-hmm. AI is an interview, it's, it's not really even a narrative so much as a conversation, it's like a yeah. semi-directed autobiographical conversation. Um, you know, what emerges is an autobiographical, biographical narrative, we can talk about the difference. But the, the thing that's so fascinating about that is that the linguistic transcript, the transcript of words on a page, can then be decoded by a, a person trained to read that through the Grice's maxims of discourse and other ways of analyzing linguistic output, to say, this is resolved trauma, and this person is not resolved trauma. And with huge predictability, you know, 75% in pregnant people and 85% with non-pregnant people, that is your baby's already born, you've got these incredibly high predictive values. And especially as a therapist, you know, where I'm working with trauma all the time, helping people resolve it, this finding that it isn't if you were traumatized, that means you're going to pass on disorganized attachment. It's if you've resolved it or not. Yes. You know, and Mary Ainsworth did that initial study to show that and everyone has followed since. And so for me as a therapist, it became really, you know, uh, uh, crucial to ask the question, what is a coherent narrative in terms of a relationship? Because that's really what the child's experiencing. Yes. So you're measuring in the AI the coherence of the interview, the, 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 the transcript of the interview. Yes. Um, so that's like a feature, if you will, of the state of mind with respect to attachment in the parent. Yes. But then, you know, and it's, <coughs> excuse me, when you're doing parent education, it's important to say, this isn't how you tell the story of your life to your kid. This is about how you tell the story of your life to yourself or to an interviewer. Um, and they go, oh, really? I said, yeah. But that coherence of how you tell the story I think reveals, let's just call it integration, which is where mm-hmm. differentiated things can be linked in a flexible, adaptive, coherent, energized, and stable way. That's a faces flow of the mathematics of what optimal self-organization creates. So I think what happens in the relationship is that 
secure attachment is based on what you could call integrative communication, which we can talk about in a moment, mm -hmm. and that the adult attachment interview, when it's coherent, is reflecting an integrative brain, and that the integration in the brain of the parent permits an integrated relationship with the child to unfold, and that it's that integrated way of communicating, honoring differences and promoting linkages, what integration is, that allows the child's own brain to become integrated. And the hypothesis that I set out in The Developing Mind, that textbook, is that secure attachment is a relational integration that comes from an integrated parent's brain and transfers that integrative state to the child's growing brain to become integrated. And you know that was a hypothesis in the 90s, but now there's a ton to support that. For example, yes. abuse and neglect impair the growth of integration in the brain. And mindfulness practices, for example, grow integration in the brain. And when I did a, a, an honoring of Mary Main years ago, uh, the, my talk for that three-day conference was um, that a coherent narrative as assessed in the AAI is reflecting the mindfulness traits of that adult. And Mary and Eric were so excited about that because we went through the 200 page manual and not being familiar with the mindfulness field, they were really excited to see that in fact there was a correspondence between what they had created in the, uh, in the coding assessment of the AI and what a separate field, the field of mindfulness or mindful awareness, what we look at when we look at um, qualities of what you might call presence. So ultimately, presence, mental presence, this open state of awareness, I think is what's present with mindful awareness traits, and it's what's present in a coherent narrative, and it's what's literally presence is the key to um, secure attachment. I think it's why there's what's called the transmission gap, that is direct observation of parent-child interactions don't get you the high percentages that AAI um, studies show. Um, and so there's something, there's a gap, there's something missing. Yes. I think what's missing is we have not been assessing parental presence. We've mm. been assessing parental behavior. Yes. That's, that's very different. Yes. So, you know, you talked about, and that's so important, uh, the 75 to the 85% correlation between the adult attachment interview classification and the um, strange situation classification. And, um, I was thinking of um, something I heard Mary Main say in, in one of the, the talks at the Lifespan Learning Institute that you guys have done, and she talked about how the strange situation, um, uh, the adult, I guess I should start with the adult attachment interview. The adult attachment interview is designed to stress the subject, the adult subject, in the way the strange situation uh, stresses the baby, and so then that brings forth the patterning and defensive strategies of, of both. And I, I just, that just blows my mind away, how she described that. And I would love to hear from your perspective and, and everything you know about the mind and the brain and, and the AI and all of this, like what is going on there? Well, I think, you know, this is a hypothesis, so it's just uh, an intuition. Uh, we don't, know for sure but i think um when there's 
the what, what Mary uh, called Mary Main calls um, you know stressing the attachment system. Um, you know, we all as as mammals for 200 million years, it looks like, you know, have this set of networks in the brain. It's not just one network, but a set of networks that are involved in attachment. And what those involves are, uh, at a minimum, are three things. It involves regulating the body. So our connection with our attachment figure lets our physiology uh, achieve, you know, states of homeostasis, basically. Um, yes. Or what may be better called allostasis. It's not just barely surviving, but thriving. Um, that's number one, so body regulation. Number two is the dopamine-based reward system is activated. So it's super rewarding to receive approval and connection and love and affection you know, from your caregiver. And so we're kind of wired for that. And number three, uh, I call them mindsight circuits. You might call them theory of mind circuits or mentalizing circuits. You know, We make maps of the mind of others first, looks like, before we make max our own mind. And so when you look at, it's, it's a complicated story, but when you look at, at the fact that we as humans have alloparenting, Sarah Hurdy writes about this beautifully in the book, Mothers and Others, you know, that's um, shaped our evolution, that we can have more than one caregiver. What that meant is we had to look to the mind of other members of our village to see who can we trust to take care of our baby. So what that means then is that reading the mind, mind sight, sensing the mind of another is of survival value in, in other ways too. We're very collaborative and all that stuff. So this third part of the net attachment network is that we make a map, an image of the mind of our caregiver. Mm -hmm. We're rewarded when we're connected to our caregiver and our caregiver and uh, connection to us helps us um, keep our physiology in good working order. So, um, stressing the attachment system, in quotes, attachment system, that term in quotes, you know, means, you know, you're agitating your body. It means you're feeling this ootsy sense of, I really need something here, my reward system. And that my image of um, my mind and, and my attachment figure's mind is front and center in what's going on and where my attention goes. What's she feeling? What's he feeling? Are they like me? They're not like me. Are they going to forget me? You know, all this stuff. <clears throat> so the separation, you know, uh, and reunion paradigm of the infant strain situation is absolutely activating that, quote, system, which is really at least three, net three networks that are intertwined. And then with the adult attachment interview, it's the same thing. Let's talk about, Karen, you know, what is it like? What do you remember from your earliest days? And I think the AI is a work of genius uh, to layer the questions and the sequence that they are and the nature of them. And I, I remember when I was doing my NIMH um, research fellowship with the AI, I'd have, you know, I was doing therapy at night and then doing these AIs during the day. I'd have subjects in the research protocol say to me, oh my God, I've never had such a great therapy session in my life. And I'm going, gosh, you know, I had to be non-empathic really, non-follow through on questions. Um, I, I'm not saying I was a robot, but you pretty close. You stuck to the protocol. <laughs> I, I stuck to the protocol and I was like, you know, flat face and everything. And I, I actually, it's why I didn't continue doing research and just became a theoretician. I'm a, I'm a therapist at heart, so I like to follow through on things and 
you'll be crying when they're crying and, uh, and you can't do that for a research instrument. I, and I get that. And I, I just realized that's when I realized I'm not a researcher. Um, but anyway, <laughs> but I'm trained as a researcher. So, uh, so, you know, but it was amazing to me that just doing the sequence of questions was itself kind of healing. Mm. And that, you know, I don't think we could say the same thing about the infant strange situation. No. As you know, even some of the concern that just doing the infant strange situation can induce disorganized attachment elements, you know, which is a, that's part of what we talked about in our gathering. Like, oh my gosh, you repeat it in like two months and a kid who didn't have disorganized attachment is now much more likely to have it because you scared them. And if you bring them back into the same lab, they're now saying, whoa, Last time you abandoned me, baby, I, you know, you, I don't know if you're going to do it again. Usually you're okay, but now you're, I don't know if you're good. Are you going to be there? No, 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 no. You know, and mm -hmm. that was, uh, you know, that was really a painful, very honest set of self-reflections. And I think since then it's been published, you know, that, that to repeat the, the infant strange situation soon after it was done, especially with the same parent in the same lab, you're going to get a much higher incidence of disorganized attachment. So especially if it's, if it's being used to say, you know, should who, which parent should be, you know, having custody of a child or, you know, which one should we use for adoption or all that kind of stuff, you know, that we, that we were urging it not be used yes. for specific cases like that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, wow. That was an important thing to be talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, the other thing before we get to talking a little bit more about, you know, how this affects parenting and how self-reflection can help our parenting. Uh, the, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about from, from your perspective is, um, I know, uh, in talking about the AI hearing, um, the, the talk that, that you all did that Eric Hesse talked about, the, the way it kind of works is you ha have to stay present with the interviewer and reflect on your past. Stay present with the interviewer and reflect on your past. And there's lots of opportunities to get kind of confused and mixed up and sort of the things that we pick up on the coding system. Mm -hmm. And I wanted you to share, if you could, um, in terms of the brain, what's happening there? Like, what, what, what is the challenge there that we're kind of uh, activating that helps our coding system pick out these things that happen when you have to stay in the present, reflect on the past, stay in the present, yeah. past. I think that's a yeah. fascinating aspect of how the whole interview works, so to speak. Well, it is, Karen, and I, I think Eric's proposition, which is so helpful, is you know, a parallel to what we talk about in therapy called a dual focus of attention. Yes. So when you're with a, a, a patient or a, a client, um, <clears throat> you know, you're exploring elements of the past and they're there with you as the therapist, you know. Yes. And so it's the exact same thing. Okay. So it's what in therapy we do all the time. Uh, so just to put it out there, that this is some strange adult attachment review induced weird dual focus. <laughs> no, in fact, in some ways you could argue, you know, in Stephen Hayes's beautiful work on ACT, you know, acceptance and commitment therapy, um, Steve beautifully talks about decentering. And I think he has another word 
that I can't think of right now about the same sort of thing. I forgot he made up the word, and, and so I, I, I haven't remembered exactly. Maybe it is decentering. But the idea is this capacity to sit within awareness, and I talk about this in the book Aware, you know, kind of like in the hub of a wheel, and to be able to say, I'm in my hub, my presence, my spacious awareness, and I can see this is going on in my rim. In this case, I'm doing the adult attachment interview, so I'm exploring memory, and at the same time, I'm really thinking about the question the interviewer asked, and if I get lost on the rim, so I'm no longer really with presence or mindful awareness, what I am is I'm swept up into the rim, and now I'm going down this long chain of, and if I'm, you know, with preoccupied attachment, so I have a likelihood of having a child who has ambivalent attachments to me, there I go on and on and on and on and on, and I've lost track, and so I violate Grice's maxims of, you know, being concise, or um, if I have avoidant attachment, you know, and you ask me about what it was like growing up uh, with my mom or my dad or whatever, and, and I just say, well, you know, it was fine. And you go, well, can you give me some details for that? And I go, no, I don't remember any details. Well, you know, with presence, I would say that's illogical. I can't say it was fine and also say I don't remember what it was like. But they get lost because they the, the strategy of saying it was fine allowed them to survive, we believe, you know, a very emotionally cold experience with that caregiver and the pain of that coldness uh, was dealt with by shutting off, I think actually shutting off the encoding of memory actually, um, not the capacity for memory, but specifically the encoding of it. And, um, you know, so there you see with the dismissing attachment, the violation in Maxim's discourse, uh, uh, the you know the Grice's Maxim's discourse, are that there's they don't have support for what they're saying, so that violates that maxim. Uh, and then for the disorganized attachment, you know, and these are all examples of people being pulled to the rim of this wheel of awareness and not staying with presence. I think that's what the AAI is really picking up. The disorganized thing, which by the way. Uh, this was true a couple of years ago, so I don't know if it's still true, but a couple of years ago at least, I asked a whole bunch of experts on trauma, psychological trauma, abuse and neglect, if there was any research instrument that assesses for resolution or lack of resolution. And what they told me was no. And I told them about the adult attachment interview. And they said, wow. So I can just say, wow. You know, without doing this on purpose, the AAI, at least a couple of years ago, became and remains the only assessment, and it's research validated, um, to, to say, does a human being have lack of resolution or resolution of loss or trauma? So that's an amazing gift. I mean, this is why I'm so, you know, honored to talk to you about the AAI and so honored about what Mary Main and Eric Hesse and and all the AAI pioneers have created for us. And this is why I use it as a therapist and my teachings for therapists. And you saw, I don't know if you were at the 2010 meeting or the other one, but you know, there was this meeting with, I've done a couple of them with Mary and Eric. And at the end of one of the first time we did this, Mary Main takes the microphone 
and she says, this is a big moment. I have never allowed the adult attachment interview to be formally used for clinical practice. But after this three-day seminar with Eric and Dan, I am now releasing it for clinical use. It was, were you there? I don't know if you heard that one. I, I heard, heard that. I uh, had it on the recordings. I was not present, but um, I have the recordings from it. Okay, so you, yeah, you know. So it yeah, was like this. It was this, like a, a seminal watershed moment, whatever word we want to use. Though. Oh, yeah. It was so profound because the thing, just to say, this was, I think, 2010, I believe. Um, in 1992, I was at the Society for Research and Child Development on a panel with Chris Heineke, Mary Main, and Mary Ainsworth. And I think there may have been one other person who I'm forgetting. But the question that we were addressing at that meeting in 1992 was, should the AAI be released for clinical use? And the two Marys said, absolutely not. And I pleaded with them to let it be released. And they, very appropriately, by the way, to this young, young buck, you know, saying, let's release it, you know, said no, because we don't have the research enough. And by the way, it's meant for statistical analysis of many large groups of, large groups of people, not individuals. And, you know, so over the years, someone trained the AI, I just use it, used it personally for my own use, not just in myself and my family, but, you know, for, um, for patients. And so I could do it in the privacy of my own thing because I'm trained in it. But, um, but once Mary released it, then we could use the AI or versions of it, you know, for clinical use. And that's when you see me, you know, publishing in, interviews inspired by it um, that uh, are so helpful. And, you know, the AI is a research instrument, is copyrighted and you know, to use it for research, then you have to be trained in the research protocol. But for therapists, it's so useful because it helps guide you not to, you know, categorizing the person you're doing because you're not trained to do that, but just getting a feeling for what the person has is in their autobiographical semi-guided narrative. Um, and that, you know, is, I think, a direct sign of literally the integrative state of that person. And the beautiful thing is you can help a person move toward coherence of narrative when they start out not having it that way. Yes. And, you know, I would imagine your experience might be the same that every therapist that um, has used the AAI clinic clinically that I've ever spoken to is like, what? I'll never not do this. <laughs> this is exactly. like so helpful. Like, how did I live without it? You know, well, kind of thing. I felt for sure. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's why I'm so grateful to have, had the research training in and, and then, you know, the developing mind, uh, you know, when I first wrote it in the end of the 90s, was a gift to Mary Main to try to ask the question, you know, what is going on in the brain of an individual who presents with an AAI like this or like that or like this or like that? Yes, yes. And what, and what can we learn from this beautiful AAI uh, research protocol that might apply to our individual lives, might apply to our family lives, might apply to our romantic lives, might apply to understanding the brain, um, understanding even the whole process of psychotherapy, of making sense. So, 
anyway, that's a whole other topic. Yes, yes, but I do want to interject here that we as therapists, you know, really have you to thank for that release because I think it's your your brilliance and your understanding of research and science and the brain um, and clinical work. I, I know that, you know, most researchers, and I've even heard it in the Q&A of, of some of the training, um, will say, we don't know what to say about it clinically. Like, that's your thing, you know? So, yeah. you know, you made that bridge for us and, and, and so grateful for ourselves and our clients and patients because it would be a shame for it to just have been sequestered over here in the research world because it has so much to offer. Uh, thank you. Yes, well, thank you. And I, um, I think it was appropriate that they held off for those extra 18 years, you know, and uh, collecting all that important data without it being out, out and about. And, um, and I'm so, so grateful to Mary Main, you know, for the courage she had to, you know, see where we were at and see the power of it and, yes. uh, and release it. Yeah. So, so let's talk about, I want to move here um, and take a, a short break. Uh, and then I want to move into talking about um, how specifically this impacts our parenting and kind of like practical application of some of what we've been talking about. This concludes part one of the two-part conversation between Karen Doyle Buckwalter and Dr. Dan Siegel on how our attachment histories impact our current relationships. Part two will be released on Tuesday, November 12th. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.